All right, well, this is the first of two shiurim that we're going to do on Tikkun Olam. Uh, just a reminder of uh, within the structure of Masachet Kitin, uh, the first three prakim are really devoted to Kashrut Haget. Uh, the first parak and a little bit is devoted to the particular Takanab, Fananichtam, Fananichtam, and things that spin off of that. The rest of Parak Bet uh, is devoted to the issues of Ktibat Haget, and Parak Gimel is the issue of Lishma in Haget. And that spins off into the issues of Cheskat Chaim as we dealt with. The sixth parak deals with Tznai Beget. The seventh really deals with a person's status when giving a get. Uh, and uh, the eighth parak deals with issues of Rashut, how you put a get in her room and, and her house uh, without her actually physically getting it. She's still divorced, etc. And the ninth is the practicum about how to do a get. Now, that's a real overgeneralization across the board. But notice that I skipped the fourth and fifth prakim. And that's because the fourth and fifth prakim are devoted to a single topic, which spins off into two topics, which we're going to call tikkun ha'olam. And the reason is because throughout the fourth parak and in the beginning of the fifth parak, there is a list of takanot made by different chachamim of different generations that are all associated with tikkun ha'olam or something spinning off tikkun ha'olam. In the middle of the fifth parak, there becomes a variation of that, which is called Darkei Shalom, and a whole series of takanot, of enactments that were made in order to ensure Darkei Shalom, what that may mean. So I'm going to start with what seems like Darkei Shalom, but I'm make the argument that this is what really animates the entire series. But I want to open it up with just a little story. Um, as everybody here knows, Tikkun Olam, or Tikkun HaOlam, uh, became the watchword of the heterodox movements starting really in the 1990s, uh, where Tikkun Olam became almost the religion, or shall we say the central principle of, uh, and validly within Reform Judaism is the central, central principle, it's translated variously as social justice, repairing the world, etc., uh, and so just a little story, I was working um, at Los Angeles Hebrew High as the principal back in the early 90s, and Ali Hebrew High was affiliated with the conservative movement. Uh, and uh, to be honest, I went there as a give back because I'd grown up there and I had uh, learned there and I thought that I would be able to contribute to the students there. Baruch Hashem, we saw a lot of payroll. Uh, and my principal went to a meeting of planning for the professional development day for the conservative and reform educators who were working together. And the woman who was in charge of planning the program told them at the beginning of the meeting that the theme of this year's program will be Tikkun Olam, which is greeted with a chorus of sighs, essentially saying, not again. And she then tried to comfort them by saying, well, this time it'll be Tikkun Olam from a Jewish perspective. And I remember him coming back and telling me that and us having a good chuckle over the idea of tikkun olam from a Jewish perspective as opposed to what. But uh, as should be fairly clear from what we've already studied in the DAF and what we're going to do today and next week, tikkun olam is a far cry from the way that it was perceived publicly and in those, uh, in those circles. So let's take a look at what it is in the sources. By the way, the phrase tikkun olam, or properly tikkun ha'olam, is something that appears nowhere in Tanakh, and it starts in the Mishnah. We're going to see this in the Mishnah and in the Tosefta. Uh, it also shows up and is discussed in the Bavli and Yushalmi. We're going to see some discussion about that. Uh, and again, the two parallels are tikkun olam, which has spin-offs like takanat ha'shavim, takanat aguno, takanat mamzerim, etc. But those are all forms of tikkun ha'olam and Darkei Shalom. So we're going to, instead of explaining the principles, let's see the examples, and we're going to use the inductive method of reasoning and not deductive, which uh, many current thinkers believe is really the divide between the more traditional and conservative thinkers in society and those who are, and I'm being very generous here, saying are more progressive, uh, is that a conservative thinker takes a look at the information and sees what's out there. And from that, we'll draw principled conclusions or conclusions of general rules. That's called induction. Deductive reasoning, which within the world of formal logic is much more solid, but when the world of observations is at actually far weaker, 
is you start with the general principle and then you find all of the details and instances which will support that, which of course is very poor research. So we're gonna act inductively. And that is, we're gonna take a look at all the list of things, the list of things that are considered to be tikkun olam. And in this shiur, it's really gonna be a survey of the sources that talk about tikkun olam. And in next week, next week's year, we're going to start talking about the principle behind it and what we can infer from it and perhaps even practical applications uh, in our day. I want to start with a pasuk that seems to not be the right pasuk uh, because it doesn't mention tikkun or olam anywhere. And that is a pasuk in Mishlei. We all know the pasuk. Right, that the ways of Torah are ways of pleasantness and all of her paths are peace. All right, keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it. Now, we're going to very quickly run through the Mishnayot of Perak Dalad and Hey, we're not going to read every word because much of this is material that we've already studied. But if, as you recall, in the first two Mishnayot, which are grouped together in our printed version of the Gemara, uh, the, uh, the rule that a, shal, a man who sends a shaliach to uh, bring a get to his wife the, theoretically and from the essential law can cancel that shaliach out of your shot of every every party involved, including the wife and the shaliach, which of course would lead to a terrible thing, which is the shaliach delivers the get, the wife thinks that she is divorced, and then she goes on marriage somebody else. In the meantime, the get has been canceled, and she's not really divorced, and go from there. And so therefore, in Mishnabet, we find that's the first place in Arasugia that it shows up. Gamliel, as Akane said, you're not allowed to do that. Any cancellation has to happen within earshot of the shaliach or of the wife, so that there is no misunderstanding. And then we go ahead and see that Megamliel has Akane. This is Megamliel of Yavne's grandfather, who was the uh, chief rabbi of the Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim in the beginning of the uh, of the first century. He was a grandson of Hillel. Uh, made another takana, which was that you have to list all different names by which you're known. And again, so that somebody can't come around and say, oh, that was some other guy with the same name. You have to list all of your identifiers, as it were. Now, continuing on, um, and we find that uh, a widow, who, of course, could not collect from the heirs, if the heirs were minors, without taking a shvua. But the shvua had to be something agreed upon by the heirs. And if the heirs didn't want to issue a shvua because they thought she would not tell the truth under oath, and as a result of that, she couldn't collect her ketubah, which means that the almanah, here's a widow, who has decided to not stay on the estate of her dead husband. There are young heirs there who have an executor who is working with them. And he or she leaves with nothing in her hand. She's devastated. So he So he made a takana that she can initiate a neder, anything with any terms that they want to give. She'll say, all fruit is also to me. Sleeping is not, well, you can't do sleeping, but all water is whatever it is, is also to me if I took more than, you know, $3 from the estate or whatever it is she says. And then she, she, can, she can collect her two bucks. This, by the way, means we're talking about a circumstance where People were more lenient with themselves when they came to an oath than with a netter. And it's something we're going to see in a few days. Uh, we actually already saw it in the Gemara. This, of course, is Rabbi Eliezer's position that Edim is Sirakarti and the Edim signing on the get are not essential to the get. Because again, a woman's going to get divorced and then the husband will contest the divorce. She will look for the Edeim Mesirah, and they are gone or dead or whatever. And therefore, to back her up, we've got Edeim signed on the get. Of course, according to our mayor, they are essential to the get. And then, of course, there's Prusbul, which is Tikkun Olam, and we discussed that at length. We then moved ahead uh, to the issue of an Eved who was made a, a uh, identified as single out for collection on a debt, and then the master freed him. Theoretically, the, lend, the, the lender is out of luck. But because of tikkun olam, we force, and again, we had a machloka, who's being forced here, but we make sure that the creditor does not get cut out and that the creditor does have uh, means of collecting. That's all I'm concerned with here now. 
We have the very famous case, which we're right in the middle of in our Dapim now, which is the half Evan, half Ben Chorin, who became that way because he was owned by, let's say, a fellow. The fellow died. His two sons inherited. One son freed the slaves. The slave is half free, half Evan. As a free man, he can marry a Bat Yisrael, but as an Evan, he can't, which means this guy can't marry anybody. So Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel said that he works Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday for himself, Monday, Wednesday, Friday for his master, for his half master. And Beit Shammai then said, well, you haven't solved anything because he can't marry anybody. And then he said, we forced the other guy to free him, so he's now free. And the Evan has to write a star that he owes that money to the half master who didn't free him voluntarily. We then move on. If a man, a person sells his Eved outside of Israel or to non-Jews, in either case, he's now going to be deprived of the opportunity to fulfill mitzvot that he could have done otherwise. Then automatically he goes free. We also have a rule, and this became prominent about 12, 10, 15 years ago uh, in the Gilad Shalit affair, which is you do not redeem captives for more than their money. That's the whole story of the Marambi Rutenberg, right? Perhaps. Uh, again, tikkun olam, and here the tikkun olam is that we are afraid that if we pay exorbitant ransoms, then that will in, enable and ennoble, not in, kind of empower, shall we say, uh, kidnappers to kidnap more people. It becomes a good business. And this is an interesting discussion in the Gemara. What's the tikkun? Well, we'll see it actually here on the Mishnah. We do not let, we not help captor, captives escape because of tikkun olam, what's the tikkun olam? Moshe Gamliel says, And the question is, does this mean that from now on, either the next guy they capture, they'll just kill because they, they're going to lose him? Or does it mean that the people they now have in captivity, who didn't escape, are going to be hurting? In any case, you notice, and this is, a, I want to take a minute to look at this in the middle of this very quick survey, is that we know what the rule is, which is that we don't help the shvuim escape. But what's the reason? Is it tikkun ha'olam or takanat ha'shvuyim? Because we agree what the rule is, but what's the reasoning behind the rule, which may impact when we apply it? And that is, are we doing it to make sure that in the future, when people take someone captive, they will respect their life because they know they could get money for them? Or is it to protect the current shvuyim? Okay? Now, we move into a different area. Although you will notice that many of these takanot have to do with interaction with non-Jews. Right? You're not allowed to buy tefillin and zuzot from a goy for more than their value. Again, and the concern is that they may rob or even kill a Jew to get his tefillin. That's say I can get a lot of money for it. And uh, again, it's similar to the issue of the slave. Um, we then move into an issue which sets us up for a tikkun olam, which is the rule that if a person divorces his wife for any one of a certain amount of reasons, even though technically he could he could remarry her if he's not a Kohen, nonetheless, in certain circumstances, we don't allow that, right? And um, and the reason seems to be that we don't want it to become a flighty thing. I mean, I mean you know, a man should know that if he divorces his wife, he'll never be able to take her back. He better think about it three times, four times, five times before he decides not to do it. And then Rabbi Yosei tells us that, uh, Rabbi Yosei Yehuda tells us that it was a story in Saidan, Saidan on the north coast of the, the Kinneret, said um, that made a netter against his wife and divorced her, and the Chachamim allowed him to return her because there was a particular case of Tikkun Olam. Now, no, I'm not going to go into the details because that's something waiting for us in a few days, but the point is that here it has to do with domestic harmony. It's going to bring us closer to the next parak. Right? We then said um, that uh, we talked about somebody who, wild case, divorced his wife because it turned out she was an island, meaning they're together many years, and she never developed secondary sexual characteristics. She obviously can't give birth. Whether he can later marry her again. Now, what happens if she marries another fellow and has kids, and then she wants her ketubah? Meaning, as an island, she would not get a ketubah. So now, Chaim married her. They were married for 10 years. Clearly, she couldn't give birth. He divorced her. Doesn't owe her ketubah. She marries Moshe, and suddenly she has kids, which proves that she wasn't an island. She was a very late bloomer. She comes and claims her ketubah. So he said, we tell her, you better be silent, better than to say anything, because if you say, I'm really not an island, then the fellow could turn around and say, well, then I didn't really divorce you. And then we've got a terrible mess. 
That seems to be another version of the Tikkun Olam, even though it's not explicated here. Now, here we have a case that hits the end of Parshat Bahar. Remember, Parshat Bahar shows kind of the descent of somebody who sells his property and then sells his house, and sells his land, and then sells himself, sells himself to a Jew, sells himself to a Goy. person sells himself to a Goy. We don't redeem him. Redeem his kids if he sold them, but he don't redeem him, right? And um, if, let's say, somebody sells his field to a non-Jew, there's Israel, and another Jew buys it back, the buyer has to bring, I guess, to bring Bikurim, and the Tikkun Olam here seems to be to prevent the guy, person from selling land to the non-Jew. Now, this moves us into the next para. And I know that we're going at a breakneck pace, but that's what we kind of need to do to get the full scope of Tikkun Olam. I just want to take a moment to note, up until here, what we've seen is that Tikkun Olam impacts chiefly on issues of Ishut and Avadim. You notice that. A lot of it had to do with marriage, widow, collecting a ksubah, things of that sort. The crucible got thrown into that. And then also issues of avadim, a half ebed, half ben chorin, an ebed who was an apotiki, an ebed who sold to, to, uh, to, out to chutzlarts, right? Uh, somebody who sells himself as an ebed, redeeming avadim, right? So there's kind of two areas of life that, and, that we want to, and again, next week we'll talk about what the principle underneath it is, but let's note the information. The information is that somebody who, um, in their marital, or shall we say, end of marital status, whether it's divorce or widowhood, is facing a challenge that we understand is unfair, we correct it as much as possible, and that's tikkun haolam. When we have a, a, an individual, and this is not something we're comfortable with, but something we have to do. We have an individual who is currently in a bad state. But if we step in to help him, many other people may suffer. Sometimes we're held back from doing that, like redeeming a slave for more than his value, or helping somebody escape, or redeeming a safer Torah from a non-Jew. We hold back because we're aware this safer Torah may be in better hands when I buy it, but then think about how many other Sefer Torah and how many other Jews will suffer because this guy understands, if I can get a lot of money for a safer Torah, I'll go do what I'm going to do. So it's important to keep that in mind when we look at all of these together. We turn to the next Mishnah, which should be labeled Parakeh, and we go into an area which seems to be foreign to what we're talking about, meaning different, very different from, from Parakeh. And that is that, remember that the core um source for collecting on a debt in the times of Chazal and up until really the period of the Gonim was land. And therefore, automatically, the rule was if you took on a debt, whether the debt was because you borrowed money or because you did something where there was a cost or because you damaged somebody, in any case, your land becomes encumbered for that debt. Now, your land, if you remember this from the beginning of Baba Kama, your land has, land has three grades. In skiing, we call it green, blue, and black, different kind of runs. Uh, but in land, we call it edit, benonit, and ziburit. Edit means the finest land. This finest land might be property in midtown Manhattan. Uh, it might be a extremely arable land in the Central Valley. But it's land where its per acre worth is great, for whatever reason. Benonit is middle, and ziburit is uh, bad. So... The way that we assess it is if somebody caused damage to another person, Chaim's ox trampled uh, Moshe's uh, flowers, then we assess the value and we assess it on Moshe's, on Chaim's best land, Edith. A Balchov, Chaim borrowed money from Moshe, then Chaim's middle land, his Benonit, is what's assessed for the payment back. Chaim marries Susie. Susie has a claim on Chaim's least valuable land, as that's the Ketubah. And each one of these, the Gemara goes through either Psukim or explanation for why that's the case. But Mary disagrees, and Ketubah Tishai is from average, not the lowest. And then we have another rule about what we can collect from Shubadim, we can collect from Yitomim, etc. And then we have the following rule, which is uh, that 
when we um, when we give when we the baking step in for a woman who is a widow and want to help her out by taking from her husband's property, we only do it from um, we don't take it from nechasim mishubadim, meaning stuff that was encumbered and is held by somebody else. Only by stuff that's called B'nai Chorin, which is still sitting untouched in the estate of the man who died. That's Tikkun Haolam, even though she really has a claim. If somebody has finds a Metzia, right? So I, I find a wallet, and in the wallet, I find $20. And I and I come up to you, and I say, I, did you lose your wallet? Yes, give me some Simanim. You give Simanim. I say, here's the wallet, here's $20. And you say, there were $30 in there. Normally, you would have to. I would take, take an oath because it's basically modem miktzah, and nevertheless, we made a rule that I don't take an oath. Why is that? What's the tikkun olam there? Is if I know that when I return something, instead of the guy saying thank you, he's going to make a claim against me that there was more there, and then I'm going to have to take an oath, which I don't want to do under any circumstances, to the effect that I really there wasn't anything more there, then I'm not going to return anything. So you understand that now Tikkun Olam is working on a more global level. It's saying, we want to make sure that interactions between all sorts of people, not just Abadim and widows, but interactions between all sorts of people are smoother and people will be encouraged to do the right thing and will take the block out of the way. It's kind of like the Prusbul, where Hillel said, people are not lending money. It's jamming up our entire system and it's depriving the poor of a chance to get out of their poverty. And therefore, we're going to make that Takana. We're going to jump down. Uh, actually, I want to take a look at part of Mishnah Notice it doesn't say here in the Mishnah, but these are people who cause damage to some, somebody's property without any visible impact. So, for instance, mitameh. Okay, you have some truma, and I'm tameh, and I come over and touch it intentionally. The bread is still the bread. The bread hasn't changed. It isn't moldy. It isn't ugly. There's no peanut butter on it. It's still the bread. And yet, you as a Kohen can't eat it because it's Trubat And so therefore, really, I don't owe anything because Hezek, Shein, and Nikar, Lav Hezek. Invisible Nezek is, doesn't count. But, Netikun Olam, perhaps, we say that you are Chayal if you did it intentionally. And the same thing with Pigun. Now, you're going to now watch how this is going to morph into the direction we want to get to. Rabbi Yochman could go to Look at Mishnah Hei. Mishnahe belongs to the category that we refer to as Eduyot, even though it's in Masachet Gitin. It's also an Eduyot. Rabbi Yochman would go to testify, meaning he testified about something that happened before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Here in Yavne, he gave that testimony so it could be recorded as part of the law about a girl who was non-compassment. She was a Hereshen. Her father married her off when she was young, when her father still had domain over her. And then later on, the husband wanted to divorce her. He was able to divorce her, even though she had no mental competence halachically. And uh, and he gave further testimony about things related to that. And then we're going to start moving towards Darkei Shalom because we're going to see takanot that are not exactly tikkun olam, not worded that way, but they're all part of tikkun olam. All right? A man steals a beam. He goes to a construction site, steals a beam. And he builds it into his house. And now he feels terrible. And he wants to do tshuva. Theoretically, what should we tell him to do? Bust your whole house apart. Take the beam out and return it. You tell somebody like that, there's no way they're going to do it. So what do we do instead? We say, pay the money. We want to make sure that people will. Now, shavim is a double entendre. People will return items and people will do tshuva. And to make sure that then happens, we want to make it easier for them. Right? And a chatat. Uh, that became stolen and nobody knows about it. Uh, and nonetheless, it's brought. It's machaper, because otherwise we would say we can't bring it to the Mizbeach. We want the Mizbeach to have it. There's a long discussion about the Sikrikon, which we're going to talk about in detail uh, in Shir, uh, which were the Sikari, were some basically land robbers in the time when the Romans ruled the land, before and after the Churban. Uh, and the rule of a Sikrikon is, if I as a Jew buy land from the Sikari who seized it from another Jew, what I have to do to make my, make things right with the Jew who was taken from, and we go into those details. Um, and 
that entire thing seems to be driven by tikkun olam without saying the words. And then in Mishnah Tet, um, actually one more one more thing uh, I want to show you. And again, this is all driven by tikkun olam without saying it. Meaning it's a whole series of of things that purchases things in the marketplace. We're now out of the issue of marriage and avadim. We're in a, a broader field, and uh, we're saying there's a whole series of things that we allowed, and it seems to be to enable people who are otherwise disenfranchised, or shall we say, more vulnerable than others, to give them a leg up. So the first one, look at Mishlachet. Which means that somebody who's a cheresh, a deaf mute, which means he does not have the ability to make kinyanim. However, if he is intelligent, many people obviously have discovered are fully intelligent, maybe brilliant, but they have this speech uh, and hearing uh, challenge. Um, and therefore, from the technical halacha, they couldn't make a kinyan. Romez v'nirmaz would mean that he can make motions and hint, and they have halachic impact when it comes to kinyanim. Pu'utot, pu'utot are young kids. Their kinyanim are valid when it comes to metatoli. Right? And that means they have to demonstrate that they have an essential knowledge of commerce and a value of things, in which case, if they buy something or they sell something, it's a valid act in metatoli, which then means something we're going to see a little bit further on um, in uh, in the next Mishnah. And Mishnah Tet, and we're going to read Tet and Yod, um, all of them, because it's all, all short, it's the end of this whole series, takes us to the second pole of the whole piece. Because up until now, everything we've seen has been under the general rubric of Tikkun HaOlam. However, Tikkun HaOlam, as you see, had Takanat HaShavim, Tikkun HaMizbeach, we had also Takanat uh, HaShvuyim, and these are all variations on Tikkun HaOlam, but they are at odds with Tikkun HaOlam. In the case of Takanat HaShvuyim, because Tikkun HaOlam is a broad category, and here we're saying this takana is for one very specific group, or it's aimed at one very specific group, which will impact how we apply it. Now, if you recall, in the very first takana of tikkun olam, which was to not allow a man to cancel his shaliach of a get outside of earshot of the shaliach or of the wife, said we tikkun olam. What was the tikkun olam? What was to prevent mamzerim or agunot? And what was the notion? And we'll see it in the Yushalmi uh, a little later on. But either it means that a woman who gets a get may say, I have no idea if my husband might have canceled it, which means I can't marry anybody else and she'll be an aguna. Or she may get the get and right away, not knowing that he did cancel it, go and marry somebody and she has mamzerim. So either way, it's it's terrible. We want to prevent this thing from happening to somebody who's acting innocently and in good faith, and in one case actually acting super uh, religiously, as it were, and strictly by not marrying, even though she has a get. We want to prevent that, and therefore, the rule. We then switch to the other pole, which is Darke Shalom. Darke Shalom. And I'll make the argument, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'll make the argument, the end of Shior, that Darkei Shalom is really what motivates the entire series, including all of Tikkun Olam. And that's why I started the Shior with the Pasuk from Mishlei, Darkei Darkei Noam Teha Shalom. But there is a series of Takanot that were made, Mipnei Darkei Shalom, which come much more directly to the issue of bringing people together as opposed to avoiding um, legal rectitudes with either social or ethical tragedies, which is what Tikkun Olam really is. So here is Elu Dvarim Amru made Darkei Shalom. The following rules were put in place because of Darkei Shalom. And the first one is one we all know. So not, we didn't, most people don't know it's Darkei Shalom, but we all know the rule. Kohen Korei Rishon Rachrav Levi Rachrav Yisrael. When he called to the Torah, first is Kohen, then Levi, then Yisrael. Why is that Nei Shalom? Very simply because everybody wants to read first. So they tell the story about a guy who walks in the shul and they said to him, a coin or a Levi, he says, I'm a shishi. Right? Okay. But, uh, you know, reading first is a very big problem. 
And so people would wrestle, would wrestle for it. I mean, it's, it's a terrible reality. And we're going to see the number of these things address human realities, which we're not proud of, but they exist. And people want covered. And I want to be the first, get the first aliyah. So you know what? We'll make it simple. You're going to get the first aliyah. Later, you get the second aliyah, and then Israel. Interesting, take a look at the Rambam in his parish from Ishtayot here. He says that this whole system of going Lady Israel was only if there isn't a great scholar there. And if there's a great scholar, should get the first Aliyah regardless of his family. And he based it on the Gemara and Megillah about Rav. Rav always getting the first Aliyah, even though he was in Israel. Right? And, uh, and the Mishnah at the end of Horeot. In any case, Marvin Bevait Yashan, we're going to hear a beautiful story uh, in the Rishali before the end of Shir about this that when you have Eruv Chatzerot, or any Eruv, it's not a string. All right, when we just recently made donations in order, and if we didn't, nobody should do it, made donations to support our local Eruv, we're supporting really the people who go out and check the string and the poles every week and fix them if they're not fixed, et cetera. That's not the Eruv. What that is is Suratapata. That is the, we'll call it quasi-fictional fence that fences in all of West LA as being a private area. But nothing can make it a private area if there are multiple and there are hundreds of thousands of individual owners in that area. So what makes it a single area in Rishut Ha'achid is there's one person in whose house there is a matzah or a, or, or a challah. That's the Eruv. Now, the Eruv Chatzerot used to be, in the times of line, a Chatzer. A Chatzer had a number of houses, three, four, five, six, whatever it may be, and it was all enclosed in a chatzer. And how were you able to carry from your house to the public area of the chatzer, to the courtyard, and to the other guy's house? She made an Eruv. Which house did the Eruv go in? By Yashan, the oldest house in the chatzer. That settles it. That way, we don't have to worry whose house it is. I want my house, I want my house. The oldest house. Now, you have a series of cisterns, right, in a farming area. Whichever cistern is closest to the trench that brings the water gets to fill first. Simple way, basically, so far what we've seen is these are simple ways, these three, of settling disputes in what seems like an arbitrary, not a random, but an arbitrary manner. But that way it takes it out of people fighting. We want to keep people from fighting. Those three fit that. The next one takes the ranks it up. Tanakama says, if a katan, let's say, a kid who's 10, finds something, picks it up, and you grab it from him, you are a gazlam. Because from the actual letter of the law, he can't make a kenyan. And therefore, you could take it. But what's the darkei shalom here? Is I want you to imagine what would happen if people behaved that way. Someone who went to us, this is disgusting. But someone were to take advantage of somebody's infirmity and they found something and you grab it from them and say, yeah, you're going to can't fight back. You don't have any legal recourse. You're a little kid. You're a uh, deaf mute. You can't really hold your own. And I'm going to take it from you. Now, on a technical level, maybe that works. Maybe, maybe it's yours. But we're going to say that's called Gezel. And Rabbi Yossi says, Gezel Gamor. He says, no, it's not a Tekana. That is Gezel. And the Gemara will discuss how. A person puts down a fish net or puts down a uh, bird trap. It's out in the public area. He has no claim on it, and a bird gets caught in it. Somebody else can come along and take it. However, you understand what the what the injustice is of that. And therefore, we're going to call it gezel. Let's say a poor person goes to collect payah from a, an olive tree. So he goes up to the top of the olive tree, and she knocks some, some olives off, right? And another guy comes up and picks up the olives that dropped. That's gezel. Because, of course, we want to, this guy, we went through all this effort. He's a poor guy. He's got some payah. And he climbs to the top of the tree and shakes some olives off. And then somebody else comes along and takes it. That's not nice. It's wrong. And therefore... That's called Gezel Neitarkei Shalom. And Rabbi Yossi again says that it is Gezel Gamor. In all three of those cases, and I lined them up so you could see it. 
And now, let's say that a non-Jew comes into your field, picture root, if you will. A non-Jew comes into your field to collect you don't stop them. That's Darkei Shalom. Now, that's Darkei Shalom of a different degree. So, so far, we've seen three kinds of Darkei Shalom. The first three were ways to settle disputes. We have a simple arbitrary rule. Kohen Levi Yisrael, boom, you can't argue about it. Oldest house in the Eru, you can't argue about it. The closest uh, cistern to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the trench, to the, to the uh, irrigation ditch, you can't argue about it. The next three of them have to do with people who, for whatever reason, their uh, financial success depends on something which doesn't allow them to actually have ownership yet. Either yet because they're not old enough or yet because it's still in a trap and they haven't grabbed it or not yet because they haven't climbed down from the tree to pick it up. And yet they've done all of this work to get it. So when we say, it really is theirs. And Reveal says, not it really is theirs. And you take it from them, that's Gezel. And then the, the, the last one in that list was something that will take us to the end of the parak, which is we have to get along with people. I was always impressed my entire life as I was a kid, by the statement in Masachat Brachot about Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan never had anybody say hello to him first. He always initiated hello. Yochanan is the biggest rabbi in the world. Always initiated hello, even to a non-Jew in the marketplace. Anybody he saw, he said, Shalom Aleyhim. said hello. He greeted them. I always got my kids yelling at me because we go hiking. And I have a rule that I developed. They used to say hello to everybody. And people don't necessarily have to be bothered. But I always had the rule, it's a stum, that if I ever saw somebody hiking alone, I said hello. And my kids asked me why. I said, because you never know that that person may be walking alone, not because they plan to, but because they have no one to walk with. And you never know where a single hello and a single smile from somebody can brighten up somebody's day. What's the downside? And I was I was motivated by Rabbi Yochan. And that seems to motivate these last three takanot, which are that we do not stop non-Jews from collecting lekachikopea, right? And then um, um, we have a whole series of rules about getting on, chaverim and ameharis getting along. Remember that a chaver is somebody who's part of the collegium, and uh, and we avoid certain interaction with the Ameha Aretz, who are not careful about Tumot, about Tumavatahara, and yet we we encourage as much connection as possible. The Chulam Lo Amru Shalom. It's a whole list of things that we did all Shalom, and Marzikim Yedei Goyim Israel. Let's say you see a goy working on Shmita. You go up to say Shkoya, good work, right? By the way, it happens to me. I walk. Up and down near Durango to get to to to, to Mincha every day, and I see some of the workers there. Sta, you want to greet them, and they often will let me go first. And I say, no, you're working. Me, I'm walking. You're working, and I, I try to show them that they honor the fact that they're working. And all of that is b'nei darkei shalom and shalim bishlomon. You greet people, non-Jews. You greet them b'nei darkei shalom. You got to have a nice relationship with people. Those are the two prakim of Mishnah. And again, my, my, we're going to look at a few other examples in Tanaitic literature, then a beautiful piece of Yushalmi, uh, and then I'll, I'll present my argument at the end. We have a Tosefta in Trumot. Right? So if there are orphans who are associated with another household, somebody who's taking care of them for whatever reason, he has to take ma'asrot from his own thing and give it to them because it's tikkun olam. And again, it is um, it is because he's he's a vulnerable person. We want to help him out. And now take a look here in the next halacha. A katan comes up to somebody in the shuk and says, "Please give me some ma'aser." That means you're trusting that the kids are levi. You have to give it to him. And again, if the kid is being like that, he's clearly in need. We then take a look at Tubot. And in Tosefta Tubot, Tubot, 
So here you find an interesting dispute. Tanakama says that Ketubat Isha has to be associated with the land. By the way, every Ketubat that any of us have ever agreed to in our marriage um, indicates that, that the collection is for land uh, and beyond. Um, because if it's metalpolina, it can be something that disappears. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And if Ketubat is associated with that, he says, this is not Tikkun Olam. And again, like we saw Rabbi Yossi in the Mishnah earlier, he disagrees with, not with the law, but with the reason for the law. It's not Tikkun Olam. It's the basic reason is that the, the, uh, the amount associated with it doesn't really work. Meaning on a technical reason, it would not work to make the Ketubah mean on the top of the lead. And now, we may ma'amru and he's a king shamin lan bi'idit. That's an interesting question. Remember, we saw in the beginning of Mr. that when you've done damage, it's your best land that gets appropriated for payment for that damage, edit. And the reason is simple. The Torah says, If you to pay from your best. Here, the Tosefta asks, why did they did they say that Nizakin are assessed from edit? And they give a reason because of Gazlanim and Chapsanim, people who will take advantage of the law, there's a person's going to say, why should I hurt somebody? Why should I damage somebody? Why should I not be careful? Like, after all, he, and he'll say, and the answer is, I shouldn't. I have no motivation to steal because what's going to happen? Beitin's going to come and take my best land. Now, this is a wild statement because Edith on the Zakin is de'oraita. That's clear. Sugya, the beginning of Baba Kama. Edith on the Zakin is de'oraita. And yet here the Tosefta says, the Torah itself is putting it in for, for what reason? To keep people from stealing. If you steal, that's called Nezek. person will say, what's the point of my stealing? Beitin's now going to come and take my best land. Okay, I won't do it. Good. So now the Tosefta says, based on the Pasuk, but it's really a Tikkun Olam. It's there in order to prevent people from stealing. Why did they say that a Balcho, remember, a, a creditor collects from middle land? Again, cheaters, because a guy is going to come along and see that his friend has a nice field. And he'll find a way to lend the guy money, and then he'll come and take his good field. So you know what? You only get Benoni. In other words, what we're saying is that the rule of, of collection, including a rule that's the right of mitav, is actually generated by the spirit of what we'll call tikkun ha-olam, tikkun ha-chevra, right? But in the real sense. And um, in the Tosefton Gitin, we see some of the same things that we saw in the Mishnah, uh, including uh, helping captives run away, um, including about uh, doing pigol or being matame, uh, somebody else's food. But here explicitly is Mehmet Tukun Olam. And an interesting one, which I have not seen in, uh, in, invoked in the whole current discussion, current last 60 years discussion uh, about abortion and, and halacha, but a machatech tet. Let's say somebody goes in to cut out the baby. Now it could be there's a C-section. And he damages. Right? Now what's the Tikkun Olam here? Is the Tikkun Olam that he's Patur? Because we're going to say we want to allow people want to allow people to do operations. Right? Just like we say if a son is a doctor, is he allowed to treat his father? He really might draw blood. Or is it the Mezid Chayav Netikun Olam? Unclear. Um, and we have several other examples, and these are actually things that we've already seen, and some of them new, like in, in the end of Tubot, and here it's the Tosefta Rabbatra, is that, uh, is that we, but we saw this already in the Mishnah and Gitin. Okay. Um, I want to show you now this. Um, this beautiful passage in the Yerushalmi. Um, and by the way, the Mishnah that we saw about, about allowing Goyim to come in and collect pay, like et etc., in your field, uh, poor Goyim is amplified by the Tosefta that says, Mefarnasin Aniye Goyim Imaniye Yisrael. 
That, that means the tzedakah fund has to support the non-Jews of the town along with the Jews. If a non-Jew dies, we have to bury them and we have to give a proper eulogy for them. You have a friend who's a non-Jew and he's mourning for the loss of a relative, you have to go and give him consolation. All of this, again, and now one which is really wild, right? Um, you know, the Mishnah at the beginning of Abodah Zarah, and by the way, I want to show you, you're seeing now what the broad range of these halachot are. They go from Peya and Shvi'it and Tubot and Babatra and now Abodah Zarah. The beginning of Masachat Abodah Zarah talks about the prohibition that we're not allowed to interact in commerce, you may remember this, with pagans just before their holiday, three days before the holiday, because the concern is they're either going to take the thing that they bought from you and use it as part of their worship, or because they made a good deal with you, they're going to come and give thanks to their God. For, and you don't want to enable that at all. Here we go. You can't work, do any business with him on his holiday. Don't hang out with him and get silly. All right? You don't plan and go hang out with him. But let's say you greet him, but without getting silly and all lighthearted and joking. Now, by the way, these are pagan. Even on their holiday, you're allowed to go and say hi to them and greet them properly. We're not talking about the guys that we interact with all the time in the street. We're talking about actual devout pagans. For practicing their Saturnalia, their calendar. On the holiday, you can come up with them and say, greet them. Questions, what can you say? Can you say, happy calendar? I'm clear. Right? Now, um, I want to take you to one other place before I show you this Rishami that I keep promising you. It's just so beautiful, so delightful. The Torah tells us in Parshat Bo that Ibn Israel were told to take a lamb or a goat into the house on the 10th, keep it there to the 14th, and you were supposed to take it one per household, and if if the household is too small, meaning there's too few people in the house to devour a lamb, then you and your neighbor take one together, it counted as all the people in both families together will be able to participate in the Pesach. All right? The Mechilta, now we're talking about Midrash Tanaim, Right. So far, I know that means you work in the field. Right. How do I know that it's your neighbor who lives next door? Right. Meaning somebody whose door is next to yours. All three of these are mentioned. Meaning somebody you work with. So in other words, any way that somebody is close to you. Now, Pesach Mitzrayim, the Pesach brought that one year. There is no rule of when it comes to the Pesach in generations. But in Mitzrayim, because they did in the house, that rule applied. Rabbi Shimon disagrees and says, ah, Pesach Torot, Shcheno Karov Leveto. Even Pesach in perpetuity. You bring it with your neighbor. In other words, if I have, how many people do I have in my household? Let's say they're all there. Right now I have, what's saying, a few months, eight people. Right? My wife and me, five kids, uh, seven, plus three. Okay, ten. We got ten. Ten people are not enough to eat a lamb. So who do I invite? I don't invite somebody. I invite my neighbor. This is Rabbi Shimon. Now notice that little statement. The reason the Torah said Shcheno is Darkei Shalom. And I want you to see how this turn, thing, turn things upside down and gets us ready for next week. Is that the Torah, that, that don't think that Darkei Shalom is an idea that the Chachamim came up with. Maybe they were inspired by the Pasuk in Mishlei, and they decided we're going to make all sorts of enactments to reduce friction, like in Shul and in the field, and et cetera, in the Chatzar. No. 
The Torah itself commands us how to take Koran Pesach, this is classic from Shimon, Darish We're familiar with that idea. Rabbi Shimon himself looks at the mitzvah and says, I know what the reason behind this mitzvah is. And he says, so you shouldn't have a person who does this. By the way, we see people who do this. person should say, I'm going to leave my family alone. I'm ignoring my neighbors, all the people close to me. I'm going to go to some other city and do Pesach with those guys. We don't want that to happen. And therefore, in order to increase Tarkei Shalom, what did the Torah say? That you do it with Shechino, and Rabbi Shimon says, therefore, it's not a rule about Egypt and the way they ate and the palaces, but rather, it's a rule about Korban Pesach, and he says it's based on another pasuk in Mishlei, Tov Shachen Karov Meach Better a neighbor that you're close with than a, than a relative that you hardly ever see, or that you're distant from, right? Um, so now, let's take a look at this Yerushalmi that I keep promising. Remember, we said that um, that an Eruv Chatzerot um, is something where you set up in order that in a walled-in courtyard, you put the bread in somebody's house, and that person then becomes the owner, and everybody else is Mephatel Rashut. We studied about this in Eruv in, all right, a couple of years ago. Um, that everybody then is Mephatel the Rashut. They say, I don't own my place. I'm all, we're all guests of you. And we're all one big happy family in this chatzer, and therefore we're able to carry because it's really an absolute reshut Now, notice what happens. It's a gorgeous story. Why do we make a roof chatzerot at all, which is all de rabbanan? Because mita oraita, these are all reshut and it's all fenced in. You can carry there. shalom. Now, remember, we saw earlier that. You put the Eruv in the oldest house of Nedarke Shalom as a way of settling. Which house will be in? Okay, the oldest house, Nedarke Shalom. Here we're going further. Rabbi is saying that the whole reason for Chayim Chatzirot at all is Darke Shalom, and how he supports it with a story. There's a story about a woman. She was in a fight with another, with a neighbor. And she sent her Eruv with her son. To this woman. In other words, she sent it, and maybe she didn't even mean anything good by it or any any sense of appeasement, but Naste Gofavte The woman saw the son of her enemy, her enemy or her foe, or somebody she wasn't getting along with. She saw him walk in with food. She didn't realize it was an A-roof. She saw him walking with food from this woman that she was having a fight with. She grabbed him, she kissed him, she hugged him. Right? So this boy came back to his mother and said, I brought her the Eru and she kissed me, she hugged me. Oh, this woman really likes me and I didn't know. Oh, it must have been a misunderstanding. And that led to the making Shalom. Now, this sounds like really pulling out of nowhere, saying, okay, there was this one bizarre story where based on a misunderstanding, peace was made. We're very happy about that. The woman who received the food thought that it was a gift. The woman who sent it intended it as an error. Okay, fine. But there's something much deeper going on in the story. They're saying the whole notion of an Eruv Chatzerot is that we're sending food to each other. And that we are essentially declaring one person to be the owner of the Chatzer and we're all your guests. Which means that instead of it being, you got your house, my house, got his house, right? And I don't go there, and you don't go there, and I don't talk to that one. Instead, we're sort of forced into a unity. And so therefore, he says, the entire notion of Eruv Chatzerot is Darkei Shalom. So you see Darkei Shalom in two different places here, built into Halakha, not artificially imposed on Halakha. One is the Rav Shimon's take on Korban Pesach, and second is Rav Yeshua's take on Eruv Chatzerot. All the ways of Torah are pleasant and her paths are all peace. By the way, that's a pasuk that's utilized in a different context, but halachically. And that is both in the law of the Lulav and the law of the Hadas. The Gemara in the third parak of Sukkah defines what the rules are for a Lulav, and it suggests, 
maybe the lulav should be a um, a um, palm branch which is still kind of fresh. And the and 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 it, even though it's pliable and everything that we want, nonetheless, it has some sharp sticks to it, sharp, sharp thorns on it. The, the Mishlei says the ways of Torah are pleasant. We can't, the Torah is not going to, the Torah will not command us to pick up something which hurts. And then in the next Amud, the Gemara in Dokumata Hadas says, maybe oleander, which fits because it's chained, etc., fits like Hadas, should be because it's a poisonous plant. Torah's not going to tell you to pick up. Torah wants you to pick up a beautiful thing, a nice thing, thing that that makes you connected to 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 growth and not to death. Okay, um, and so we've seen quite a number of sources. So I want to end with one source. This may take us touch past the hour, but uh, this is an important source to see because we're going to end with this. In the context of in the Mishnah in the, in the Gemara in the fifth parak. When the Mishnah tells us that as part of the Arkei Shalom, we have Kohen Levi Yisrael, we have the following thing. How do we know that this is the case? This is in Vayelach. Moshe writes the Torah, and he gives it to the Kohanim B'nei Levi. Now, this is, by the way, a very complex issue about a Kohanim Halabi'im and a Kohanim B'nei Levi. Who are Kohanim Halabi'im? Don't we all know that Kwanim or Bnei Levi? What other tribe would they be? So why does the why does the Torah say Kwanim Bnei Levi? The answer is Kohen Bereshavada Levi. The answer is to tell you Kohen then Levi. Kwanim Bnei Levi, first Kohen then Levi. I got a different pasuk, it's kind of the same thing. This is with Ego Arufa. Right, which is again indicates that Aaron and Moshe were um, the Levim, and Aharon was separated and sanctified as Kodesh Kodeshim, which tells you Kohen and Levi. He says it's very simple. You know why Kohen goes first? Because the Torah says Bikidashto. You have to sanctify him, which means you let him go first for anything of Kedusha, like Kriyat HaTorah. There's a bright of mouse of Rabbi Ishmael. Come into the dinner, he's given the first thing. Okay, so that's the background. Now remember, our Mishnah said, And now we've got Sukim. Now, our assumption is that means it's a rabbinic enactment made to prevent fighting or to enable the disenfranchised or whatever it may be. And here we're saying Sukim. So Amr Le Abaye the Rav He said, How can you say that Kohen Levi Israel's is It's Doraita. implies that it's a rabbinic enactment put in as an artificial cover on the halacha to enable peaceful relations, reduce friction, etc. He says, how can you say that? It's Doraita. Watch what Rabbi Yosef answers. It's gorgeous. I'm shalom. It is Doraita. And why did the Torah institute coin first? In order to prevent fights. Now you know, where coin goes first. Okay, then maybe, okay. So I can't lobby to get the first aliyah. Yeah. The answer is the whole Torah was named Shalom, meaning the reason the entire Torah was given, that's what we'll talk about next week, is There's something that the Rambam famously says when he sums up the halacha at the end of the Gomorrah in Shabbat says, What do you do if you only have enough money for? Um, for oil, for Ner Chanukah, Ner Shabbat. What do you do? The answer is Ner Shabbat. Why? Because Ner Shabbat is Shalom Bayit. And he rules that. And then in the, in the highlighted part, Gadol HaShalom said, peace is so important. That's why the entire Torah was given, just to make peace in the world. And he quotes our Pasuk. 
And indeed, the very last Mishnah in the entire canon, the very last line of all Mishnah in the canon, there is no vessel that holds blessing like peace. Peace is the greatest vessel of blessing. Shemar Adonai owes them oiten Adonai verechem shalom. I'm going to say the Kaddish now after a seat. But this is that now, the reason I'm bringing us to here is because what we're seeing in these last sources, Rav Yosef to Abaye, um, the Rambam at the end of, uh, of Sefer's Mani, the Mishnah at the very end of the Mishnah, and then we also saw it even here in the discussion of Eruvei Chatzay wrote, is the notion that not that we have a halacha which is sterile, and that it's our job to step in and try to soften it and modify it and tinker with it a little bit in order to create friendly relations between people and reduce friction and protect the unprotected. Rather, that's from the Torah. That's what the Torah says. There's nothing foreign about it. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week when we do part two of this discussion, uh, which is simply going to be looking at the same sources. There won't be really much of a difference in the source sheet here and there, maybe a little bit. But uh, because what we're going to do is look at the same sources, but now we're going to try to take all that information and see what it means and what how it impacts on us and what a proper understanding of Tikkun Olam is. One, one thing we will do uh, at the beginning of this year, next year, at some point in the beginning of this year, next week, is look at the famous line in Aleinu, which is broadly understood to be the charge for the Tikkun Olam movement. And uh, we'll show that that's uh, wrongly understood as well. In any case, um, so everybody should have a great week. And we will meet uh, next uh, next Monday for part two.